Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. Now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. (laughs) Well, uh, while people get logged on and all that sort of stuff, I, uh, my, my Caleb, who's, uh, my Caleb, he, um, <laughs> he, uh, we're, we're now transitioning him into uh no nap. We're going to see how that goes today. And so we're, we're planning on putting him to bed early. So, uh, long story short is, uh, me and the missus got up early and I, I went to the gym. She got ready and she's going to go, go later. Uh, but I was up super early working out, <laughs> so if I fall asleep halfway through this, I'm just getting used to a new schedule. <coughs> Anyways, uh, welcome to B-Sides. Um, why don't we uh, get just hop right on in here? <clears throat> um, we were in Revelation chapter 13 on Sunday, uh, and it's been a it's a fascinating chapter. Uh, but one of the things that gets me about Revelation 13 is actually the last verse of Revelation chapter 12. Uh, I, I think the last sentence of 12, it concludes what happened in 12, but I think it just must, as much as it concludes everything that happened in chapter 12, I think it sets up chapter 13. Um, so if you have a Bible, uh, I, I would go to the last verse of 12. Uh, we're we're going to start there. Um, and just as we run up, uh, Revelation chapter 12 introduced to us the dragon. Remember, he was blood red. He had ten, uh, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. Uh, and he was later revealed as this ancient serpent of old, the devil, Satan. And uh, chapter 12 is just a series of failures on Satan's part. Uh, he tries to kill the uh, Jesus and fails. And then he makes war on heaven and Michael the archangel comes out. And Satan fails, and he's cast down to earth because there's no more room for him in heaven. And then he tries to pursue Israel, and, and a flood comes out of his mouth, and the ground opens up and swallows it, so that fails too. And then chapter 12 ends with verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then it says, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Failure after failure after failure. And the dragon, he doesn't walk away frustrated and quit. (laughs) Chapter 12 ends with Satan standing on the sand of the sea ready for more war. Ready for more death. Ready for more chaos. He is not dissuaded in the least to stop this rebellion against the Almighty. In fact, he's constantly doubling down. And the imagery here is incredible. Uh, the, the first thing to note is Satan's descent in chapter 12. Chapter 12 opens with Satan in heaven, and then he was cast down to earth, and now he is down at the sea. So the, the, the chapter 12 is showing us that the more Satan rebels, the more he descends. Until later, eventually, he's going to be thrown into the earth in chains. 
uh, and then eventually it's going to be thrown even lower into the lake of fire. So Satan's trajectory in, in chapter 12 and then in the rest of Revelation is one of down, down, down. As he rebels, 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 he descends, descends, descends. And this is a warning. This is a warning to all beastly people. The more you rebel against God, the worse the descent, the fall will be. And interesting, believers have the exact opposite progression in this book. As we look at the believers in Revelation, in chapter 1, we see that the church starts in the, in the low place. The, 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 the church in, in chapter 1, John is in prison. In chapter 2 and 3, the church is in trial. The church is suffering. In chapter 6, the church is being killed. But then as the book progresses, God's people are taken into heaven and glorified and healed and tears are wiped away. No more scorching sun. The, the, the prisoners become priests. It's almost, uh, give me a little, a little room here. It's almost as if the story of Joseph is playing out in the life of the church in this book. Uh, they, they are, by their brothers, tossed into the pit, sold into slavery, uh, mistreated, slandered, lied to, uh, as good as dead. But slowly the prisoner becomes the, the, the king. <laughs> and this is what's happening to the church as the book of... Um, as the book of Revelation is progressing. So, as Satan rebels, he descends. And as the church obeys, they ascend. Now, also, Satan's standing over the surface of the water. I couldn't get that picture out of my head. And if we think about the beginning of creation, as God hovered over the surface of the deep in Genesis chapter 1, God brought order to chaos, and then what? He brought life out of the waters. But here in Revelation 12 and 13 is Satan. And as we read on Sunday, and we'll read today, he is about to interact with the waters himself. But unlike God... Satan, the dragon, doesn't bring life and order out of the waters to create new life. Instead, he brings out death and chaos <laughs> in the person of the sea beast, his son. So today's text lays before us a contrast as God brought life out of the waters, so Satan, the counterfeiter, will bring death. And then also, as we think about the, the sand, what do you remember the covenant God made with Abraham? He said that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. <coughs> and now here is Satan, the serpent of old, and from the waters he's going to bring out an anti-creation, a people against the covenant, a, a demonic host as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And so there's almost a satanic covenant being made in the person of his son as Abraham's descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand of the sea, uh, not only in, in that he, he's the father, the patriarch, but through Jesus Christ, his line. 
And as Jesus said in John 8, Satan has been a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And here in Revelation, he brings about a new agent of murder and lies <laughs> to continue to rebel. So there's lots of really fascinating parallels here. Um, if you're into the Bible, that sort of a thing. Uh, let's now move to chapter 13. Ah. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So both the dragon and the sea beast have ten horns. Ten in scripture is often used to symbolize a complete list, and ten horns would mean complete authority, complete power. But there's more to it here. The, the ten horns, not just symbolic of power, but they call back to Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel chapter 7, there was a beast in Daniel chapter 7 that had ten horns. And so I, I, what I want to do is... I want to read uh, uh, Daniel chapter 7, and hopefully you can see some of the parallels here, not only between the ten horns, but in the description of the beast. And, and here we see in Revelation 13 that he saw a beast like a leopard, feet were like a bear's, and his mouth was like a lion. So we have three, we have three animals described in, in, in Revelation, uh, and we're going to see that these three are also in Daniel. So let's let's read it. There's lots of connections here. In the first year of Belteshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head uh, uh, as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. Now, Keep in mind, Revelation 13, uh, <coughs> the beast that came up out of the sea was uh, had three animal characteristics to it, not four. But let's listen. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, so that we have a lion. Then uh, as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. Ah, so we have a lion and a bear. These two connect. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. This is a ferocious bear. And it was, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard. There's our third animal that shares with Revelation 13 with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads. Now, we have a four, and we have four leopard heads, we have one lion and one bear, so we're at six. Now we know God loves sevens, <coughs> and how many heads does the beast have in Revelation? He has seven, so we're looking for another head here, and right now we're, we're matched with the animals. And dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and st 
stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. We're never told that his head was an animal head. So we have the same exact animals in Revelation 13 describing the Antichrist as we have in Daniel chapter 7. Now, we're told that this beast, with, we're not given any animal descriptions of it, but we're told that it has teeth, which implies it has a head. How many heads does that make us now? Seven. So we have seven heads in Daniel chapter 7, we have seven heads in Revelation 12 describing Satan, and seven describing the Antichrist, or the Antichrist, the sea beast in chapter 13. So the heads match up, the number of heads, the heads match up, and the animals match up. And, I, and, and they were given authority. That matches up as well. I considered the horns because it had ten horns. There we go. Now we have ten horns again. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and there was came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. So this, this horn is a man, and a mouth speaking great things, and later he is blasphemous. The Antichrist is a combination of all of these beasts from Daniel chapter 7. And the little horn with the big mouth certainly fits the ministry of the Antichrist. Because what's one of the first things we're told about the Antichrist? Besides that he's wounded and healed, he leads people into false worship. He blasphemes with his mouth. The weapon of the Antichrist is his speech. Verse 3, uh, Revelation. Sip break. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he who had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Revelation, the whole Bible, we have to understand, was not written in a vacuum. Certainly the seven churches first received this letter. They were in a Roman context. They were in seven, seven churches across Asia Minor, placed within the Roman imperial system. And when they received this letter, if there were Roman uh, emperor undertones within the book of Revelation, they would have picked up on these things that maybe we'd miss because we're not under Roman occupation. We're not under Rome's rule. So I want to read to you something that uh, Craig Costier uh, wrote that I think, I believe, that the early church would have associated with the beast, the sea beast, that, that we probably miss. <coughs> this is what he says. During Nero's reign, Rome suffered a devastating fire. So Nero was an emperor uh, in Rome uh, after the time of Christ, but before the, the time of Domitian in which the book of Revelation was written. So this is before Revelation. Rome suffered a devastating fire, and rumors spread that Nero was responsible for the fire. So he was a crazy Caesar, an emperor, and they think uh, he was so crazy, people think that he burned Rome down himself. To deflect criticism, Nero blamed the Christians and had many of them killed. Similarly, the beast in Revelation makes war on the saints. 
Like Nero's Rome, the beast city flows with their blood. In a final Nero-like move, the beast turns against its own city and burns it with fire, where the beast was mortally wounded by the sword. Nero reportedly died by putting a dagger to his own throat. Because few saw the body, rumors circulated that he had not died but remained alive, perhaps hiding in the east among the Parthians. Over the next 20 years, as many as three individuals claimed to be Nero, by weaving stories about Nero's purported death and return into his vision, John makes the beast the mere opposite of the lamb, who died and rose. Critics of this theory point out that the legend did not say that Nero died and returned to life, but that he never really died. Revelation transforms traditions about Nero's survival of death into a story of death and resurrection in order to make the beast the demonic counterpart of the lamb. So, don't agree with everything he's saying there, but in John's day, people were expecting Nero, who had died, uh, an evil, evil man uh, who brutalized Christians, he blamed the burning of Rome on, on them. <clears throat> when the report came that Nero died and they and they elected a new Caesar, or the new Caesar took to power, um, a lot of people were speculating that Nero never died because a lot of people didn't see the body. And so they were expecting at some point Nero, this crazy evil man, to come back riding into Rome to recapture it. And so there was some, in sort of the folklore around Nero, that he was a man who was dead but is now alive. And here's why I wanted to share this. In First John, John alludes to this. But as we're reading about this beast, the early church may have had a mental picture of what this Antichrist, this sea beast, looked like because they had survived under Nero, as as the Antichrist is mortally wounded and, and comes back and seems miraculously healed, they could resonate with that because that story of Nero was circulating. Was he wounded and going to come back? And if he did, would all of Rome follow? So there are undertones here within the culture, within the context of the first century, that I I, I I really believe that the early church would have picked up these undertones. And Nero becomes a picture of sort of who the Antichrist is. He is a crazy, evil, violent man. Now, I do not think that Nero is the Antichrist, and a lot of people do. Uh, but I do think he certainly is a picture of the Antichrist. And there are some threads here between what happened to Nero and what Revelation is telling us about the end times Antichrist that I think we can start connecting some of these dots here and go, okay, this guy was a foreshadow for a greater evil. Um, and and, the, and these, these, these connections were probably not lost on the early church. <clears throat> Let's keep reading here. Verse 5. And the sea beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Now, the book of Revelation and really the whole Bible, but prophecy really employs lots of threes and sevens. And here, this seven-headed sea beast which is described after the description of the other seven heads, uh, sea beasts, sea beasts in Daniel 7, 
this sea beast, seven-headed sea beast in, in Revelation chapter 13, is now going to blaspheme God, and he blasphemes God in three ways. The first, he's blaspheming his name. And then you see that word and there in the English, in the Greek, that's Kai, and his dwelling. So he blasphemes the name of God, who God is, God. Then he blasphemes his dwelling, which is heaven. And then you'll see in the ESV, I disagree with this, it says that is those who dwell in heaven. The, it makes it look like, and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven, as one thought. But when you look at it in the Greek, that is is actually the same word, and. It's Kai in the Greek. So it's blaspheming his name, Kai, his dwelling, Kai, those who dwell in heaven. So there's three distinct things here. And so the Antichrist and Satan, they blaspheme against God. They speak inappropriate, profane things against who God is, his person and his character. They blaspheme against heaven, God's dwelling place. And they blaspheme against those who dwell in heaven. Really interesting about that one. Who does that include? Who lives in heaven? Well, that includes the Christians, who we know he's making war against at this present moment. But doesn't this also include two-thirds of the angels that weren't persuade by him yeah doesn't this also include michael who just spanked satan in a war yeah doesn't this include the cherubim who were closest to the throne of god who satan seems to be a, a cherub yeah yeah it does so it, it, satan's attacking all the people who did not follow him in his own rebellion uh, and and in light of chapter 12, you know, Satan just lost the war in heaven. <laughs> and now like a bully who got beat up, he starts name calling after the fight. Uh, yeah, he, he's a punk. And that's today's text. Uh, one thought before we, we conclude here. Uh, and interesting, it, it seems that the from all of the early church datings almost everybody's in agreement and not not completely so this could be off um but it seems that the biblical books of first second and third john were written after the book of revelation so the book of revelation was not chronologically the last book to be written It seems 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were. The, the Revelation seems to be written around 90 to 95. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John seems to be written around 95 to 100. Now, in 1st John, John writes something that about the Antichrist that I think is going to be very helpful for us. 1st John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. Ah, so now many Antichrists have come. Fascinating. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, are, they all are not of us. John, who records the book of Revelation, he writes down the, the, the prophecy, the vision for us, writes a few years later that there is an Antichrist coming but that there are many antichrists present through every age. So there is a man coming, but there are lots of men with his spirit throughout the age, even in his day. There is going to be a final 
Antichrist, yes, but there have been countless others of the same spirit leading up to him. You know, we think about Hitler and Mao and Stalin and Nero and Genghis Khan. There have been and are and will be many types of Antichrists. So, so one of the reasons we are told about this man, even though he seems to be placed so far in, into the future, is so that we may recognize the foreshadows of this evil among us. You know, an interesting, John in his letter, when you look at the Antichrist in, in, in the book of Revelation, it primarily focuses on his deception of the world. And his war against the church. But John then later, when he's writing to a church on his own, he's not receiving a vision, he's writing a letter. When John writes a letter in, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he then decides to talk about the Antichrist and how he operates amongst the church. So the Antichrist's relation to the world is in Revelation. The Antichrist's relation to the church is in John's 1st, 2nd John to, to the church. Uh, and so John writes down four different things about the Antichrist, four ways to identify when the Antichrist spirit is working amongst the church. And I want to read this for you. First John 2.19, uh, John says that a way to identify and recognize the spirit of the Antichrist are those who, First John 2.19, who leave the church. So those who apostatize and leave the church, there is a spirit of the Antichrist somewhere at play there. Second, 1 John 2.22, those who lie and deny Jesus and Father, their authority. Uh, 1 John 4.3, who do not confess Jesus is from the Father. 2 John 7, those who do not confess the second coming of Jesus. So, so the book of Revelation shows a general scope of the Antichrist's evil and his relation to the, to the unsaved world. And John's letters to the church focuses about the spirit of the Antichrist's interactions, his deception amongst and in God's people, uh, 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 within, within the walls of the church. Now, what we can gather from this list, as I was staring at these four things, is that four of the four warnings John pens have to do with bad, deceptive, and heretical doctrine. So when Satan wants to destroy someone, when the spirit of the Antichrist wants to take someone out within the church, he promotes bad doctrine. The spirit of the Antichrist works among the church, and even today by influencing people and denying the necessity of the church. How many people have you heard I don't need to go to the church. We are the church. John says, plain as day, because they want out from us, they are not of us. The church is comprised of people who gather. <laughs> so that doctrine where the believer does not need to assemble with other believers is from the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, that doesn't mean if someone believes that they have the spirit of the Antichrist, but certainly they have come under the deception of it. It's, uh, we, we also see those who are under the deception or have the spirit of the Antichrist deny the authority of the Father and the Son. So they attack the triune God. 
We also see they deny Jesus is from the Father. Now, that was a big issue in the early church when uh, a, a lot of the, 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 the Jews who hated the Christians, I mean, not all Jews because you know the early church was made up of Jewish people, but the attack was that Jesus was not one with the Father. And John says that is from a spirit of the Antichrist. And then the last one, he says, they deny the second coming. And isn't that fascinating? This, the, the return of the Lord was so foundational to the early church that John says that those who deny it have come under the influence or have the spirit of the Antichrist. So according to the Apostle John, if anyone who has been a member of the church and then takes one of these four positions, they have either been swayed by or have been given over to the Antichrist spirit. And so this is, as we we close here today, we have to be very clear on, on core biblical doctrine. Listen, the, none of us are going to get up into heaven and have perfect theology. <laughs> none of us are going to get up into heaven and have it all figured out. It's not going to happen. But there are a few things that we have to be rock solid on. And John get lists four of them here in, in First John, and there's more to this list. But what John hammers out that he's dealing with in this church is the church has to gather. We have to be deadly serious about assembling as the church. We also see that we have to be deadly serious about the authority of the Father and of Jesus, that they work in unison and together with one another. We have to be rock solid that Jesus has come from the Father, that he is the Father's only begotten Son. And we have to be very serious that Jesus is coming back. You see, a lot of people that really don't believe that, as if life just continues on and on and on. The Lord is returning, and the church must be very serious and firm on this issue. And so this is how Satan seeks to sift those within the church by getting us to deny these doctrines. Well, we are done. <sighs> Why don't we pray, and we'll uh, we'll get moving on uh, for, for the day here. God, we love you. We praise you we thank you we ask that you would you would protect us we ask that you would nourish us with your truth help us to hold on to the truth and god let us not become so susceptible and gullible from the lies of the evil one and God, we ask that you would surround us with, with godly men and women that may help keep us from error, God. We, we pray for Jonathan's and we pray for David's. We pray for people in our life that we can knit ourselves to and stay strong together with. And God, of course, we pray for a mighty pouring of your Holy Spirit that you may preserve us and not only help us to survive and run our race well, but that we may thrive and bear much fruit. We ask all of these things in accordance with your will and your goodness. Be with us now, and in Jesus' name, amen. I love you all so much. Um, personal personal uh, request here. Uh, I've had a heartburn for about two months now. Um, it kind of came out of nowhere, and I'm taking proton pump inhibitors, and 
Um, it just doesn't seem to be doing it. So I don't know if I have like an infection or something more serious is going on or it's GERD or I, I don't know. Um, and I've, I've had esophagus issues for a long time. I mean, decades. <laughs> uh, but so if you could just keep me in prayer there, um, you know, I'm trying not to stress about it, but you know, when you look at your little kids and you just got done a horrible back surgery and you just, you want to be healthy. So um, I, I pray, if, just, if you could just keep me in prayer for that, I, I would be very, very grateful because God answers the prayers of his people. So anyways, I love you all. Thank you. And uh, we have Bible study tonight in Harford County in Bel Air. If you're interested, come on by. It's at six o'clock uh, and the address is on Faith Life. So love you guys. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work that God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word to live the Word to share the Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore B-Side.